Hello, Rantbox TV viewers and listeners. Today we're here for part two of our discussion of the importance of narratives in the modern era. Uh, today I'm joined once again by John, Ola and Ollie, and we're going to expand on some of the ideas we touched upon last time. Uh, Rantbox TV is a weekly podcast where we try and bring together people of a diverse mindset to talk about things in a constructive manner. Um, and it's something I'm rather fond of. I hope you enjoy the discussion. Uh, so, last time, where did we end up? We were talking about how stories affect our modern, the conversation in the modern context. We're talking about superheroes as exemplars for representation uh, and as a kind of a consumable morality model um, and symbol of authority. And also we're talking about the ideas of, are some people inherently bad? Do we need obvious heroes and villains? And how does that affect how we see stories in the modern day? So leading on for that, what I want to take in the direction of is how does representation in storytelling affect the public conversation? Um, Ola, I believe you had some ideas. Okay, well, actually, hello, Rentbox people. Um, yes, I do. I, I want to talk about how representation in storytelling is affecting the dominative narrative. And I want to actually go back to something that me and John discussed in a previous episode. We were talking about... Um, how music was very masculine, even shoegaze, like the guitar is the ultimate masculine symbol. And I've been watching something that I think has been challenging this narrative. Uh, thus, you can see behind me, I have lady parts. Are you guys, have you, have you guys heard of lady parts at all? Yeah. Yeah. John, you have? Okay. So this is a, TV series about a all girl, all Muslim punk band. And that really is taking um, a turn on the whole macho punk white male narrative of, of rock and roll, because I think rock and roll tends, can be quite white as well. And I just, I, I don't feel like, you know, it's more like, oh, well, if you're gonna be, um, you know, like a lot of Afro-Caribbean people will be into like urban music and stuff like that. So this is a really interesting tale about taking that symbol, that guitar symbol, that symbol of the man that's always been within the music industry and then giving it not only, I mean, it's not that new all girl band, but here we have even a better twist. Um, brown, Muslim, all girl band from this perspective you know, because these are, are people within our society in the UK that I feel don't, doesn't, doesn't get that much airtime, doesn't get that much representation properly. And they're, they're like, it, it's great because it embraces English culture and Muslim culture and rock and roll. You know what I mean? We're, we're the, it's like, finally, we're seeing a fusion of cultures rather than, oh, yeah, it's just a bunch of old white guys into punk music kind of thing. That's why I chose this particular uh, picture of the girls. Yeah, the, the, the one in the, the full hijab, she's the band manager. She's, she's just, I'm starting to think that she totally rocks the look with gloved, fingerless gloves as well. And she's just sitting there going like this. It's, if, if, nobody's, if, if anybody hasn't watched it, I totally recommend Lady Parts. It's so much fun. 
touches on the politics, but it's it's also really fun. It's easy, but it's also challenging. But it's not threatening at the same time. I don't. I, I, it's a it's a good balance between these things, and that I think this is one of the one of the best, one of the best UK TV series representations of challenging the dominative narrative here that I've seen in a really long time. I know there's a couple of other things that I haven't seen, but this is more my, up my street with the rock and roll angle. Uh, and, I, it, you know, I think it just subverts it and says, well, yeah, we're English. This is our, our bag too. Welcome us. Okay, so anybody want to challenge me? Prove me wrong. No, anybody want to challenge or add to the to the thoughts in this, or or have their own represent? John, what do you have to say? Yeah, we don't normally see shows where there's one, two, three, four, five different characters who happen to follow the same religion who are in the context of a industry or trying to attempt to become part of an industry, which is obviously um, white male dominated. So that in itself as a concept has a lot of per, you know, potential. Um, I want to see more of it before I talk about it, but I'd be very happy at some point to do a talk about a particular episode or the series in general. So thanks for sharing. Yeah, I've never heard of it before. Uh, this is the first time it looks incredible. I, it's certainly something I'd check out. Well, it, I, I think what happens is it brings out the humanity. I really think that we have this conception of, of female Muslims and that they're like nuns or they're not human or they're, they're kind of dressed up in whatever they're wearing and as, as a some, some kind of armor or something. And, and here you get to see their, their backstories, how they deal with certain religious obligations and the different, different you know, ideas about what is Muslim because you know it's you know and you know she's uh, the this one with the guitar is trying to going going on dating. Uh, she's trying to, but it's like not dating. It's like find a husband app. <laughs> Just, mm. yeah. And you know, and you're seeing her and this guy like you know it's really funny. You know, like the different men that she's coming across and and well, okay, there's some differences, but then you know it, it's got a rom com feeling that could just be Hugh Granty in a way, except. You know, it's it's like they came up with a song, um, Bashir with a beard about <laughs> it was just it was just like, you know, like, like uh, this guy, he was going to, you know, he said we're going to date. And she she only gets into the band because the drummers she wants to date the drummer's brother. That's kind of how this goes. And, you know, he kind of it doesn't work out at first and et cetera, et cetera. And that's where they came up with a song, Bashir with a beard. Uh, yeah, John. Um, I have a question which you've inspired, Ola, which okay. I'm maybe Ollie may want to jump in on because so far he's just been patiently sitting there thinking, what's, I don't know what he's thinking. I'm no fucking psychic. Anyway, this is what <laughs> I'm thinking. Um, one of the most prominent authors of the Western media's, um, say, bias towards Muslims would probably be George Bush. And so I'd like to know what Ollie thinks of that statement. And just in general, how you're doing. <laughs> well, oh, wait, which hey, George, wait, sorry, which George Bush, junior or senior? Well, let's go for junior. I think he was right. the last one to really, truly transform that narrative in the way that we know it. We could obviously go further back, but as far as everyone is going to think of, the first go-to point would be the late, the last um, war, uh, so to speak. 
sweet make it easy for me man thanks very much <laughs> so yeah hey round box guys um so i think um there's one thing i wanted to say just before we do jump onto that which is that the one thing about this series that i absolutely love is that um myself quite frequently and with barbarella's bang bang crew we spend a lot of time playing in a place called the bird's nest in deptford which yeah, if you're a Londoner and you haven't been there, you should go there because it is the most adorable freak show in all of London. And <laughs> I love it. And I hope it never dies. Um, but the one thing is that while this concept may seem like a comedy, it may seem like a sort of a, oh, what if situation? That's, that's real. Like, that's the kind of thing you would see in that place. Like, this is the kind of experience that you get. And these bands are real. So it's funny when you watch like something which is about ostensibly about bands like this is a film about a rock band and they're all white guys who sound and look like me um and you're like no nah, that's not the majority of bands in london that's for sure not in east london like not at all like you know so it's funny to see that like everyone's like oh it's such an imaginative it's like no dude that's like tuesday night in deptford <laughs> <laughs> go out and experience it some of it's fantastic um that being said uh w and senior because to be honest, uh, they're a little bit interchangeable on this thing. <laughs> I, think, I think there's an interesting part. So, wow, such a huge deal. There's, um, I guess, to go back to narrative, the power of narrative there is that the States, United States, needs an enemy at all times. Um, like regardless of how you feel it's a highly militaristic country it's the most militaristic country in the world i think it's a close tie with somewhere like say i don't know israel um but they are very you know their mindset is very militaristic it's very aggressive guns are in the culture so on it's not something you think of very often but it's true trouble with that is when you've got a gun you have to point it somewhere if there's a gun in the first act it has to be used in the third act or it shouldn't be there at all so um, the trouble is that if you need an enemy, where are you going to find one? Well, you can't point it at what is currently the real enemy and what may have been the real enemy all along, which is domestic terrorist. Um, but you can point it at Muslims because they are alien and external and strange and, and they happen to be sitting on top of a ton of stuff that we need. So, you know, there's an element there where, to be honest, I think even at the time, I remember as a kid with September 11th, after that and the years after that watching that narrative unfold going is it just me or are, are we like crapping really hard on these people for no reason like is it their turn is, who decides that it's their turn like that sucks uh, i, I want to i do want to interrupt about this because i think it was quite an atrocity what happened 9-11 you, you basically had planes blowing up two skyscrapers it wasn't i'm not saying i'm not justifying that what, what happened but it was like it was an attack on because whenever america has been involved in wars it's not actually happened on their soil so when this occurred and then the and then the narrative you know went this way um i think it really uh it was it was more brutal and yes you're everything that you say is absolutely right ollie i i totally agree with you they need an enemy and this was very convenient it was a, it was a big it was like dropping a bomb onto new york and washington you know what I mean? But it's one of those things where you find yourself thinking in the liberal, open-minded country that, or countries that we ostensibly live in, it's strange to take the acts of a few nutjobs and then ascribe them to an entire group of people um, for years on end. It's I, okay I to totally be, agree. 
it's it's one thing to be angry for a short period of time and i understand that but like i think it comes down to you can't keep doing that for what is now 20 years two decades you can't keep doing that with a straight face it's just and if you're if you're going to be totally honest you have to link that to mccarthyism the story of mccarthyism the communist mm. story and right and now we we still have this going on there's a there's a dual narrative in washington about whether trump won the election you have <laughs> there's, there's two different versions to reality now there's not one single version in the u.s and that right wing agenda, whether it's McCarthyism, whether it's George W. Um, find needing an enemy, that's still going on and actually being very detrimental to the U.S. right now. Speaking of storytelling, that Trump-QAnon yeah. narrative, that's scary. For sure. I mean, definitely, you know, there's, it's funny how that narrative is now turned inwards. Um, obviously, where we are at, at now. I think there's an interesting thing there as well where as you say, there's a, there's a story there, but there's a large part of that story with um, obviously with the war in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and going to the Middle East again, if you can call it again, um, where a lot of that was, funnily enough, the story just cycling in on itself and, and, and making things worse and a lot of false intelligence and a lot of people who wanted to hear what they want to hear and Tony Blair really wanting to hear what he wanted to hear and yeah. not hear people tell him the truth which is i mean who knows what happened there um yeah uh i've lost my chain of thought here john do you want Sorry. to jump in um well i do have one thing to say before i'm sure we move on because there's quite a bit to cover um just so i'm sure matt can you read out that first question again so i know that this next idea isn't like a super fucking tangent <laughs> no worries yeah, so the original question was, once again, how is representation in storytelling affecting the public conversation? Okay, so this could be halfway towards a super fucking tangent, but hey, this is what we do. So um, I was doing a shoot not too long ago, and I was talking to one of the actors about representation in media post the pandemic. Now, I think that there seems to be two different kinds of reality that you can choose when you're creating a story now in film, let alone a music video. You can either choose to ignore the fact that the pandemic happened, and so therefore you get rid of conversations, anxiety, masks, all of that, or you fall into the simulacra of what the world was before it. Um, and I'm not sure if you can really fall back into that old one in a comfortable way, because then you're obscuring all the social intricacies that are occurring now that people having to deal with that anxiety will obviously relate to. Um, so that form of, say, representation, not necessarily to do with marginalized groups, but a whole, you know, ecosystem, um, I think that needs some kind of um, addressing by people who are making stories now in popular media, not just in film or TV, but in comics, in books. Um, I'm not sure if we can easily go back to writing for that old world with a straight face. Well, do you guys, they didn't mention anything in Lady Parts about it at all. I'm wondering, do you think they filmed it before? Good. I, I don't know if they did or didn't. This is the it's question I'm constantly asking myself when I watch anything now. It's like, when was this filmed? What are they going to film in their next season? Will they suddenly have a pandemic? Will they suddenly show bits of it in a dialogue? Will, will people in the background be wearing masks? I'm, I'm not... Scared is too a big, a bigger word, but I'm quite concerned that there will be a, a weird kind of 
um, as I said, you know, crossroads where people either go hard one way and say, look, yeah, it definitely happened. Or like, no, no, it didn't happen. Here's your escape. But if you're going to be talking about heavy duty conversational topics, like say sexism, racism, what have you, if you're forgetting the context it's in, then I think you're doing a certain disservice towards the idea of it being a, um, a certain reality. Not that you can have reality on screen or in a medium. There's always going to be several layers of um, hyper reality. But to ignore that major thing, that major crisis that we're still going through, you know, for me, it's still 2020. So. Yeah, absolutely. No, no, no. I, I'm glad it's 2021. I want things. <laughs> Take me with you. Where's yeah. Marty? I, I, Marty? I, I, I went to Irving and I went to Eastbourne and I went to Hastings. I got out. Time <laughs> <laughs> machines in Hastings. Okay, I'll be right back. Hold on. Yeah. <laughs> it's 2021. It's June. I'm here. Hi. <laughs> Get, just go for a day trip out of London, man, and go out to eat. That really makes yeah. it feel almost real. Just go out to eat. Have a drink. I don't, just do that. It's good. <laughs> I mean, yeah, to come back to the question a little bit, like on both that subject of representation of the pandemic and representation of, uh, am I right in saying it was a female punk band in, uh, in female parts? Is, it's is that all right? Muslim. It's all Muslim, fem all female. They're right behind me. No, no. Did, <laughs> uh, but no, I said, is, is it, did you say it was a punk band? Yeah, punk. It's punk. Yeah, yeah, it's punk yeah. rock. Like that, I think punk is important there, especially because it's set in the UK. Because in both of these ideas, like what you choose to include and not include in your narrative affects the way that subject is absorbed by people who consume that, you know? Like punk specifically, as well as being very male, is very, very British, incredibly British, you know? So to have uh all-female muslim band who are punk is a it feels like a certain attempt to redefine how we perceive britishness which i think is worth pulling at because especially like ollie said in london you know it's not actually that unusual people consuming it might look at it and be like oh you're just you know you're just appeasing, you're just appeasers, you're just virtue signals. But then you go to a diverse location, it's like, shit, there's like five of these bands are just in the local vicinity. Like they're not as rare as people like to think they are. It's just about the popular narrative we consume. Um, and then similarly, with the idea of um, presenting the pandemic, like I think there's a certain argument for not showing it because people are just so exhausted. They're so tired. They don't need more of it. But at the same time, in a way, not ever addressing, like, I, I do hope we start to see it come out into our narratives because if we never discuss it, then we allow, like, there's so much con controversy about, oh, do lockdowns work? Do vaccines work? Do masks work? Like all this stuff. And it's like, if you don't allow those ideas to come together in a narrative and be challenged in a, a free form way, then you never see the two different ideas interact. And there's a difference between a debate where, especially when you, it's a manufactured debate and so you've got two people who strongly disagree with each other and they just yell at each other for five minutes and then they, you change the channel or whatever. Like there's a difference between that and telling a story where you have people who 
physically have to coexist because of the conditions of the story. Because when that happens, you actually create new ideas. And I, I think, you know, both of those things play interesting roles in how we change what the public conversation is through storytelling. I have something to add to that, Matthew. Uh, I just want to say yeah. that um, the the people who wrote the it basically Lady Parts is based on a real punk, like the the woman who wrote it about her experiences as a Muslim. I think she's a Muslim. I don't know, but like this is based on someone's real experiences who wrote the TV series. So when and this goes back to what Ollie said. Hey, I was down in South London, and there's loads of this stuff going on that never gets said, and and you know that that creativity, that mixed culture of London with bands and, and the different kind of, and, you know, representations within it. Um, the, you know, it's real, it's happening. Um, and so, but interestingly enough, none of the cast are Muslim. Uh, you know, so I don't know what that says or doesn't say. And I want to talk about the COVID thing just briefly about the story. To, I get why some people would want to see that. I don't. I'm, I'm so glad that there, I, I, in fact, even I, when I watch Flash come back, and Flash didn't actually deal with the story, but I could see that like the the main guy, what's his name, Grant, he looked depressed on set. In fact, he was miserably. <laughs> I feel like these guys have had a, a terrible lockdown. I could really feel it in the atmosphere on the show, even though they didn't touch upon this in the storyline. That it was really sad. Grant looked sad. I mean. You're just like, oh no, man, I'm, I'm already locked down. I don't want to see you sad. You're the Flash, man. You make me happy. So I'm not ready. I, I Personally, I'm not ready. I want to give it two years of like freedom and then I can look at the social implications because I've lived through it. And I've, it's when you're that depressed. That, that you, I, no, no, I, I, I completely agree with you. Like, I, I do feel like to a certain extent, definitely, like, e if, even if I'm ready to consume that kind of stuff, I do feel like it's it's too soon to be dominating the narrative. With, when we're, we're not even out of it yet. If you have, um, you know, like, I, I completely understand. I'm not saying that tomorrow I want there to be a Hollywood blockbuster movie. About, you know, like, like, that's not what I'm saying at all. <laughs> because, yes, I, I completely agree with you. Like, just in terms of people's morale, it would be... Just to be a bit more clear, I'm not saying that the subject matter should be the pandemic. It's just that it should be part of the context of the story. That's all. Yeah. I find that... Even sorry, I one last thing. I just find that that even though the storyline isn't dealing with it, I can feel the undertones of people when they've come, when TV series has come back, like The Flash. I'm feeling this mise en scene thing, you know, this darkness underneath. Sorry, Alan, go ahead. Oh no, I was just going to say. Uh, well, one thing is that you always know when Grant Gustin is like sad because whenever he delivers a line, he bobbles his head. Like, just watch it. Next time you watch The Flash, I'll promise you, it'll be like <laughs> bobbles. Um, <laughs> he's a he's a lovely guy, I'm sure. Um, the one thing I was going to say, actually, just from a purely practical perspective, the one thing that has actually really interested me during this is that obviously everyone's filming stuff coming up to the pandemic. They've written all their plots, they've written all their stuff, and then everything has stopped and all the production has ceased and everything's kind of run out. And we've had a year of not doing any kind of filming, any kind of you know like on-set work, it's just effects and sound stages and stuff. And now we come back after the pandemic and we can now start shooting on location and shooting on sets and doing things as we once did, at least in the UK. Um, and you think, well, 
in a way, we sort of just stopped making stuff in that year and change. You know, like, so how do you kind of casually slot that in? Do, do you just, you know, because if, I don't know, can anyone here tell me like something like EastEnders, which is obviously on a rolling, constant filming basis. Did that carry on during the pandemic? Did yeah. they involve masks in that? I, I, um, I, I've known that, I, I want to say this because EastEnders continued because I, I know people who've worked on it. And, um, but they, instead of filming the normal, I think it's like they, they, they filmed less days. Now I think it's back to normal. And they had, I had, a, I have an actor friend who filmed in Ireland during the pandemic. He went to Ireland and, you know, there was tests and, you know, like, Matt, I don't know. They, yeah, he, I think he, he, was, he was just tested before he got on set. And then they isolated while, well, you know, he was playing a Viking somewhere in Ireland. Um, but like, and there, you know that Josh Wade TV series that just came out, The Nevers? That was filmed during the pandemic. Lots of there's actually quite a few things have been filming during the because I've been watching them, and there's the Nevers was one of them. <laughs> Sorry, there's what? definitely been. Um, yeah, the Nevers. Ollie, you Sorry. say what you gotta say. I was gonna say um, there's definitely been some video of like Tom. I think it was Tom Cruise, like filming during the pandemic because he. It was it Tom Cruise? One of you it guys. It was Tom Cruise. Off, it was where he was he like, got like angry. he got super angry because it was like, this is the thing we're filming and everyone's watching to see if this works. And I was like, you know, you're watching, you're going, okay, Hollywood tantrum, but then you're like, actually, this guy's got kind of a point, you know, like maybe we should, <laughs> you know, I, I was actually sort of like, yeah, carry on, Tom Cruise, you, you do that, you rant out, you do a Christian Bale on them. I think that's good. Um, like, sorry, you were saying. I believe the Nevers, like, the, I, I know they were filming during the pandemic because they had a scene where they were going to hang one of the characters and they were going to film it in somewhere in Greenwich in that historical bit. And then they said, in the end, they built, they just built their own set for the hanging and spread the extras out to make it look like there's more, like they, they basically said they were, you know, how they had done this hanging scene during. So they, I think they filmed the whole thing during the pandemic, pretty much. It was filmed in London during the pandemic. So I think there was quite a bit of filming going on. Just if, if they had the money, you'd test and you'd isolate, you know, it'd be a small, probably a small crew and kind of thing. So there was filming going on. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess we, uh, you know, especially with big production houses, they they kind of have a an incentive to keep going and uh, what do you call it? Necessity is the mother of invention, you know? So like there's, if, where there's a will, there's a way, I guess. But um, on the subject of heroic narratives, um, I think it's quite a good segue to get into the ideas around storytelling and authoritarianism, especially when we're talking about heroism, because in a lot of these stories, we are taking somebody who is kind of an exemplar, kind of a person to look up to and a role model. And because of that, there are certain ideas that are being handed out from that, from that mode of storytelling. Uh, and based on our previous episode, John, I believe you had something uh, to say in that, in, in that realm. Well, this is the thing, Matt. I don't remember exactly what it is I had to say. <laughs> but I do know someone who has a thing to say about this particular topic, just based on what they said off camera. So, Ollie, take it away. Ah, OK. Um, yeah, so I think it's interesting that... I'm saying interesting again. I've got to stop doing that. Um, it's really cool that we're talking about 
uh, authoritarianism in general. Um, I think we mentioned fascism before, as we were talking about before we came on today. And obviously, uh, Matt Riley pointed out that fascism is a bit of a dog whistle and it's hard to get away from certain interpretations. So instead, authoritarianism and sort of the exercise of power is an interesting thing. Oh, I did it again. Wait, <laughs> Ali, I just love how thrilled you are. Fascism! Yeah! I know. <laughs> Face Nazis again. Um, Space Nazis, one more time. <laughs> so, yeah. One thing I would say is that um, authoritarianism is, is a interesting facet of this whole thing because away from comic books and away from sort of um, intentional story away from fiction there's an element of storytelling in real life the sort of narratives that we produce for our real existence I think we mentioned before about how narratives are very important for social cohesion and coherence and having a narrative as a group is important in order to progress as a society which is true however that is a two-edged sword um, you know it's a dangerous thing to to do um, the, the absolute master of breaking this down is Adam Curtis, who I believe, again, we mentioned before. He has a brilliant series on BBC iPlayer at the moment called Can't Get You Out of My Head, which is all about this very subject. Um, but as a lot of his previous work discusses it as well, and I think the one takeaway that I've had from it really is that stories are important, but you've got to be careful where and how you use them and when you say stop if in fact you can say stop because you end up with things like hmm, i don't know like boris johnson uh, and and then brexit and all the various terrible things i said the b word sorry everyone um <laughs> that are sold on a story which is a fiction sold on a britain which is does not exist but we're told could exist or did exist even when it did not um but nowhere more is that more present right now i think is with the heroic narrative is with the statue um, debate. I don't, I'm not sure if we've come across the statue debate on Roundbox before. And I don't wanna, it's a bit hackneyed. Um, but there was an excellent point raised to me about the statue thing, which is for instance, Cecil Rhodes at the moment. I don't know if you've seen any of the coverage for that and his statue outside Oriel's, but a lot of people arguing about removing it. I think a lot of people wanna remove it. 150 professors are on strike right now because they want to, they think it should be removed. And a lot of people are saying, well, look, like, why should we remove it as history? Um, we also have the Rhodes Scholarship. Should we take that away too? And my point has always been there. Well, look, what story does that statue tell? What narrative does that statue create? That statue of Churchill in Parliament Square or Nelson Mandela, that statue of Colston that was ripped down. What do those statues imply to you? What is the story that it tells when you have um, Cecil Rhodes looking like the love child of Jesus and Abraham Lincoln? hanging over the door every time you walk in what does that say it says this man is a hero and he's setting the example that we need to follow but that is wrong and people at the time said it was wrong so john's got something to say carry on john just because you're right it could be a hackneyed um route of investigation but i'm just gonna say this because otherwise if i don't i'll feel wrong and bitter inside but <laughs> if you destroy or take down a statue it's not like a Doctor Who plot where there's like a hole in space and like someone has to come along and plug it in. History will always be there. There were books, there's the fucking internet. You know, take these statues that you so love, people who want to protect this Britain that never existed, and shove it up your ass. 
I mean, but this is the this is the perfect thing. Is is exactly what you say because um, with Colston and how he is now um, displayed, lying on his back, covered in graffiti, and now the debate is: should we leave the graffiti on? And I'm like, well, if you want to preserve history, damn right you should. Like, yeah, you should leave him lying down because now he doesn't look like a hero. He looks like a pillock. And that's kind of what we're after. You know, it's like, look, there he is. There he was. That's where he was. That's where he is now. And this is what we think of him. Like, he's not going anywhere. History isn't I, going to evaporate. You know, yeah. But you've got to be careful I, with those I really stories. want to add... Okay, I want to add something to, to your statue thing. Um, and actually, uh, your statue idea actually goes back to the first thing about how representations dominant narrative. Uh, you remember when the Colston statue went down and then suddenly there was a white dude who popped up that statue of that uh, one of the, the BLM women, he created a, a artwork he, he, in place of him. He just, he did it really quick, whipped it up and stuck her up and there she was. And I was so, there, there was somebody who complained about this, like, I'm not going to say who, you, but like online, somebody complained about this saying that, you know, it was a white guy and he was usurping this and na, 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 na. And it was just kind of like the woman who, whose image was used was absolutely thrilled. She posed for the statue and it was actually based on a photo of her. And there she, and there she appeared and then they took it down. She was there for like, I don't know, three or four days. But what I loved that is, another narrative usurping the main narrative. Like we have this slave trading guy, suddenly he's ripped down and thrown down and people are stomping at it to show you, we didn't like slave trade. And then, then we have a regular, I was thrilled because one, she was a woman <laughs> and she, there's very few female statues out there to begin with. And two, this was just a, like a black, she was like a black panther to me. I know it's Black Lives Matter rather than Black Panther, but that's who she was. She was a real person, somebody I aspire to be. I, I related to her. I, you know, it wasn't about white or black. It was just about an activist. A regular person got the spotlight, not some fucking toff, some rich guy who made tons of money off the backs of people, but just that person in Bristol who wanted to stand up for something and she was a mom and she was just like a regular person and she was beautiful. You saw the statue of her, she was just gorgeous. You know, and so you ever notice this about white dude statues are ugly as shit. White slave trades and, and the wigs and they're just fucking ugly, really ugly. So she was just stunning and real. And that to me was a big point when a narrative, a, 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 an, an underclass narrative, shall we say, came up and became dominant. Only for like two seconds because they had to take it down. But I wanted her to stay, you know, because she represents me, not whatever that guy, Colston, whatever, slave trading yeah. Bristol guy. And I just thought to myself, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know if anybody else got excited when she popped up, but I was really excited. I was just like, you know, that's the other, th this is the other Britain that doesn't get shown. This is the, you know, the, the majority, not the minority that seem to have everything, but just regular people doing their thing, resisting, being a mom too, you know? She wasn't famous for anything particular except being a, um, an activist and being a mom. Beautiful. Okay, mm. 
absolutely. I, 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 I think what you said there is incredibly cogent and it's interesting how this kind of ties both subjects together because when we talk about representation, part of the thing we're talking about here is how history is told by the victors, right? Because who we choose to lionize in, this, in the form of a statue is based upon whose version of history you want to tell, essentially. Um, but then adding into that, with the idea of authoritarianism, who owns the, the square where the statue lives? Who has the right of control over it? And why is another very interesting question. Because do is it right that we just allow governmental bodies and lo, you know and, and local councils to just decide to plonk things down or should the actual people who live in that community have more of a say in who we choose to lionize yeah, and those of us who pay outrageous council tax fuck this colston <laughs> fuck man can bring me back the other statue uh, uh john you look like you had something to say just then um arguably that was what was powerful about the um protests up in um in bristol in that it was the community saying no, we don't want this, we're bringing this down. Um, I think this uh, element of, um, of discussion, this and also the pandemic in itself are things that we haven't dealt with directly on this show, simply because at the time when it was happening, I kind of wanted to take a back seat on it and just see everything before committing anything to camera. But at some point, we'll probably have to investigate those two things with you know, the, the information that we've had recently from Dominic Cummings being one of them. Um, so yeah, there's there's a lot to be said in that. But yeah, if you haven't clicked like and subscribe, now is the time. <laughs> <laughs> yes, bingo card build, nice one. <laughs> okay, uh, I'm not I'm not quite ready to put this subject to bed just yet. Uh, there was another element that I was hoping we'd get around to discussing. I just wanted to kick it out there and see what you guys have to say about it. Um, and it's the idea of how important more like paragons of justice are and when we look at things like heroic narratives and that con contrasted with the idea of thinking for yourself essentially like how do we balance being shown who to be versus knowing how to make a correct moral judgment i think um i think there's an element there of uh, to, to borrow two, two very radically different quotes. One is that morality without context is like a fish without water. Flaps around, doesn't go very far and doesn't get you anywhere. Um, usually dies gasping. The other one is that is um, one of my personal favourites is, um, is Marcus Aurelius. Waste no more time arguing what a good man should be. Be one. It sounds very trite. It's very useful in all circumstances. But basically, those two together, as you say... It's the volume of, of, um, of examples, the volume of stories, the volume of paragons of exemplars of virtue um, that, that matter. I mean, in this case, I'm bringing up Marcus Aurelius. He's a Stoic. He's one of the Stoics. And sto for Stoics, virtue is the only thing that matters. And they don't really prescribe any particular virtue they, for a, what is essentially a, almost a religion, but not quite. They don't spend any time telling you what is virtuous. They just tell you to do it and they tell you how best to do it. 
Um, obviously, there are depends on who you ask. But um, for me, this is the thing that's always I found fascinating is going back to the comic book thing is that the archetypes are important. And, you know, you know what each individual character might do in a certain situation. You know that Superman will probably do one thing. You know that Spider-Man will do another. You know that Punisher will probably solve all of his problems with bullets. Um, and you know that they're all different reactions. They're all in the same context. They're all comic books. But over time, as a human being, you spot patterns and you take those um, frameworks and apply them to real life. And that, that is the only way, I think, to really teach people what is... Um, is right and wrong. And even if that means to use a sort of structuralist postmodernist approach that you are looking at morality through the lens of the culture in which you're in at that time for comic books, that sort of classical liberalism, I think, I don't know how you want to look at it. Um, it doesn't matter because that's the only lens you've got. Like, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. Anyone? I was I mean, just I, I, I was mesmerized. That's all. Mesmerized. Yeah, I'm I'm mesmerized as well. I'm happy just to be an audience member for some of this. <laughs> to be honest, I think the last question that we have is where I'm going to basically like really go for it. But for now, um, you've been quite, you know, you've elucidated quite well what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's 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 very astute to say that because um, I remember a, a personal debate I got in uh, a while ago, probably mid pandemic, where. Um, the uh, BLM protests started breaking out in sort of a big way. And, you know, there was a lot of uh, kerfuffle around law and order versus justice and stuff like that. And it's just very interesting, the sort of conversations you get into there where some people are very invested in the mechanics of government and the way the law is written and that the law is the law and that's all that you have. Um, and I think that can be quite a dangerous viewpoint to just be like, well, you don't need to make your moral judgments based on anything but what is legal. You know, like, I think there's, it's a very difficult thing to grapple with. And I unfortunately failed in my quest to, to try and rationalize with this person. Um, but I thought it was very important to say that, you know, what is legal today might not be legal tomorrow. And when it's not legal tomorrow, if that's the case, what do you do with all the so-called criminals who are imprisoned for the non-crime now that they have done? You know, like it, when you it's talk like moral about- It's moral, rel moral relativism. Is that the no, right word? Mm. Relativism, yeah. you know, like- <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean like you know how like smokers were like everybody smoked and now it's like you're you know now it's like almost criminal and and I'm hoping for the day when I can when the people who are in cars get as a cyclist I'm hoping I can when they, they go to jail because <laughs> like they, they would they would treat me like so, such a criminal and I'm like no nah, man ass power over gas power okay sorry go on. <laughs> that's a bump sticker I'd have <laughs> I think, um, I think if I may interject, I think there's, Matt, you raise a really interesting point, which is that, um, yeah, like how, how do you define the letter of the law against reality? Um, you know, I think I've said before that, you know, like absolute justice requires absolute knowledge. 
and you can't have absolute knowledge. So can you have absolute justice? Probably not. No. Um, I think the best um, attack, uh, the best angle of attack I've ever seen towards some kind of morality with a one rule is, um, is the late great Sir Terry Pratchett. Um, and he once said that the root of all, well, to paraphrase, the, the, all bad things, all evil begins with treating people like things. You know? And anyone says it's more complicated than that is probably treating people like things. <laughs> you know, slavery is treating people like things, but also robbing from people is treating people like they don't matter. Sexism is treating people like they're not people, like they're things. You know? And the same with Black Lives Matter, like that's a very gray area. Like it's hard to define where good and bad begin and end because for everyone in that crowd, they're doing different things. They have different beliefs. But, uh, you know, if you're um, if you're the policeman clubbing someone down because you got told to and you don't care why, that's bad. You know, likewise, if you're a looter robbing off someone, not considering that that's their livelihood, that's bad. You know what I mean? If you're out there peacefully trying to make life better for everyone else, then you're treating everyone like their people, not like things. You know, so maybe that's yeah, where the good and bad is. You, you could be stealing from Elon Musk, and that's good. <laughs> <laughs> well, once you know, again, we're back at the wealth. <laughs> you know, taxes for Elon Musk. Obviously, again, this is the thing: is like you know, you treat Elon Musk like he's a person. You go like, well, look, I, I, I don't think I want to defend robbing off of Elon Musk, but I can definitely defend taxing Elon Musk with that. To say, look, you know, everyone here is a person. You're a person. You're earning stuff. You contribute to society. If you don't, you take your money and run. You treat all of us like we're things that don't matter. Yeah. John's um, got something to say. I'd say that what we've got to look out for is that essentially it's very easy to condemn the symptoms of a bigger problem. If we're going to say that, yeah, it's really bad that you're basically like looting a place, there is a reason why that might be happening within the context of a, you know, a, a certain kind of movement. Um, so just want to throw that out there. And also... In regards to what you're saying about morality, um, the people that you've quoted, they weren't living in a time where you could literally go on a march because of a war and say that you were a good person on Facebook and then the next day <laughs> just go about your life. The curation of your personality online has become for many people their life. It's not necessarily the truism of what they're doing when they're offline. Um, obviously, depending on what you've read and what you're into, um, it's very easy to find yourself within uh, communities where that can happen quite easily. But because everyone's doing it, you know, it's, it's not necessarily um, uh, a, a social crime, so to speak. We can talk about it here right now. Who knows what happens once somebody basically says that we should do this really good thing and they promote it. What do they do in their real life? offline you know so those people that you were quoting i'm not sure if they could really it's harder to apply that stuff now about thinking about the curation of a personality online that's what i'm saying i wonder then maybe if you should treat everybody as two people the one that they are online and the one that they are in life yes you know, help. are you promoting my book for me because i was going to get book. read the book now read it stop watching this read the book. <laughs> so, oh geez what is I, this I good morning Britain. I, yeah. I'm, I, <laughs> I'm gonna do a pierce morgan and throw a, throw a tantrum <laughs> 
<laughs> wait, I, I, I don't, wait, I'm confused. I don't understand. How, why wouldn't you treat someone online the way you would treat them in real life with respect? And I, I think, no, I mean, I think what John is saying is that rather than the, um, the to, to treat people differently um, in your actions towards other people online, I think he's what he's, correct me if I'm wrong, John. Uh, I think what he's getting at is that a person could um, express one set of virtues and do one set of things online. Yeah. Then put their computer down and go outside and do something else. So you could spend all your time online going, you know. Being a troll. Oh, yeah. One world, one people. I love hippies, crystals. Um, <laughs> and then you could go outside and then just, you know, beat some people down in the street because they're, you know, blue or whatever. Um, yeah, it's totally possible. But then, then again, if you're going to act like two different people, then... Um, you know, your virtue as a person is based on what you do. If you act like two different people, you have two different sets of virtues. So are you saying uh, that some people think that when they're online, it's, sorry, you're saying that some people aren't, when, when people are online and they're mean, they just don't think that's real because it's online. Is that um, what you're saying, Ollie, that, that's another That's another aspect of this conversation. Mm. But to clarify, essentially, I could say, be nice to animals. I gave to this charity, you should do too. And then okay. when I go offline, I don't necessarily follow through on that ideology whatsoever. So it's the whole idea of you being an actor in society and online being your personal space to curate that and keep that going and essentially selling yourself to your friends, family, work mates and um, other colleagues. You know, So that's basically what I'm saying, that those ideas of, of morality, they don't necessarily have to always be hooked in. Um, I think it was Adam Curtis who was saying that whole example I gave before. People would go on a march in the early 2000s because of the war, and the next day they basically just went about their lives. Whereas if you go back 40-odd years to when activism was really reaching its height in aspects of the civil um, rights revolution in America and also in the UK, and we could use other examples, but it was part of their life. Every day was like this struggle to make sure that what they were saying was going to change those laws that were actively, you know, curbing their creativity and sense of uh, freedom. I mean, I think we're, we're right back on authoritarian or authoritarianism again now um, in, in multiple ways, because um, from a personal standpoint, I see this uh, sort of slightly narcissistic bent that we're discussing here of performatively being virtuous as a symptom of a kind of authoritarianism being that we are all data points for these large social media net networks, which is one of the most valuable uh, commodities at the moment is personal data. So it's actively in their interest to encourage you to be online, to appear a certain way, to increase your social currency, and you get rewarded for looking like a good person. Um, and I think it kind of takes the teeth out a little bit of um, the attempt to do activism because it didn't used to just be AB marches, you know, like you look at, and, and this comes back around to the discussion I had with this person about um, the Black Lives Matter protests as well. If you look back at history, how did gay rights start? How did women's rights start? How did black rights start? They started with people chucking bit bricks, you know, like they started with riots. That's how the law changes. People get angry and they do something about it. You know, like I, I honestly don't see it any other way. Do you, I have a question. 
Do you think that back in the day when those people were living their lives and now it's just kind of like more like weekend activism, if you like to call it weekend activism, part-time activism, do you feel that as we are losing our liberties, as things are becoming authoritarian in this country, that, you know, I mean, I actually have this debate with my husband all the time because I'm a woman and I don't know if I want to be at the place where, where, where real revolution occurs and blood is spilled because women are the first to get raped <laughs> in these situations. You know what I'm saying? So I'm not, but at the same time, you feel like, well, we've just been living in some kind of, I don't know, rainbow capitalist bubble. <laughs> want to let that in for Matt, that's for you. No, but, um, you know, like we're in this bubble. And it's like, we're not taking what's what's happening seriously. And it's like, I feel like in the next year or so, are we going to see blood on the streets? Are we going to see serious revolution? Because things are gonna get, I feel that they're gonna get worse in terms I mean, of authoritarianism, in terms of, you know, people not being able to afford rent. These things are, are compounding in England. And we're not in the EU. We don't have the protections of a human, human rights bill either. We have a Tory government probably forever, and they're just going to keep doing war shit. They've gerrymandered it so they can win. Keir Starmer is a wet fish, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You know, is that because I'm I'm scared to? I'm not sure I want to go out there with the brick because I, as a woman, I, I, it's like, I don't know, man, just, we don't do so well in these situations, but I feel that's where we're going. Does anyone else want to feel that way or feel like we have to get like, like a blood needs to be spilled for things to change or, or going to that situation? Well, whenever like certain situations of comfort, relative ease, feel that they are in danger from the rabble from the from from the rousings of those who they've kind of put away in their the background of their mind. Whenever they're worried and the police are worried and the government is worried, then that's when things change. So take it for what it is, really. Do you mean like the that protest bill that Boris Johnson's putting in to basically make protest illegal unless it's for white wing British UKIP fuckwits? To what I'm go saying. Out? What I'm saying is when you have a situation, um, whether it be about gender or race equality um, or, or environmental concern, once it becomes rioting, that's when situations change. It's, I'm basically saying exactly what Matt said. Um, your, your, your question is, will it kick off here in that way? Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's something that we can easily answer of any kind of authority, because ultimately there's quite a few factors. Um, I mean, if you look at where we were last year in terms of how people were talking about certain situations and where we are, you know, where we are now, um, a lot of that conversation or activism has either gone one or two things. They've, they've either, you know, gone more offline and it's actually happening or those who were basically like, you know, using the aesthetic of being a punk have like, you know, they kind of like found something else to do and talk about. Um, I, I don't know if there's enough people that will get angry enough about it to do something about it on the level that you're concerned about, is what I'm saying. I mean, I, I think- just, I feel that with- Matt, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, I, I, all I was gonna say is that I think we've kind of naturally segued into the next uh, question to a certain degree here, because we are kind of discussing how we tell better stories and, you know, is, 
sort of, for want of a better term, revolution, uh, one of those better stories? And if so, does it have to be a violent resolution, uh, revolution? Is, is an, an all-out bloody conflict actually going to make things better? Um, and also, just to, just to kind of personally answer your question a little bit from my standpoint, um, personally, I feel like we are maybe starting to enter that realm. Uh, personally, I feel since 2016, we've kind of jumped into the beta timeline. Like, things are clearly going more and more crazy. We have, you know, like, <laughs> we've collapsed the quantum rate waveform and jumped across into a completely parallel reality now. That's how I feel. Um, <laughs> like, um, I think that the atomization we feel right now, especially because of the pandemic and the way our worlds have shrunken and gotten smaller, has made it harder to organize. But that up against the lack of opportunities and the you know, failing economy and stuff, it's going to create a real point of tension. And at some point, we're going to have to answer that question. So that having been said, what do some better stories look like? Um, I want to jump in on this. Um, I'll firstly add a little bit to what you just said. You're saying that you're in or we're in that kind of beta timeline now and you think it's heading that way. For that to happen, you need proper coalition. And because of, you know, dangerous um, extremist ideas on the left and the right and what identity politics can do, I don't know if there's enough cohesion there for us to basically go, let's go forward, let's do this. Because, you know, the reason why Labour loses is because it, it's eating its own tail and it doesn't really know what it is. And that is symptomatic of a lot of, say, left-leaning, um, say, uh, voices. You know, it's, it's good to self-analyze um, and figure out what you are. But if you're constantly, like, sniping at other people and not looking for the things that you ha have in common, I'm not sure how that really progresses and the idea of coalition. But having said that, it's completely understandable why people would do that if they feel their voice hasn't been heard for so long. Um, your question was... Um, what are the better stories to be telling now? Um, and we, we talked about this off camera. Um, there is a conceit in that question, which is something that, um, you know, we unconsciously ask, what are the better stories that we want to be told? But who is the we, you know? I mean, if, if we're talking about, say, superheroes, do I need to see another um, youngster in New York get powers and struggle to deal with that? I'd rather, as I said off camera, have a character who has powers, but they're in a part of the world where witchcraft is still something that's taken very seriously. I want that story to be told by someone that's from that community who can do it with a certain amount of justice. If we're going to have a sci-fi story dealing with, uh, say, uh, transgenderism, I don't necessarily need it to be something which is, again, from a Western perspective, because that Western perspective, it, it filters through all of... Um, these stories, even people that will come from these countries that want to be become part of what it is that means that it means to be like, say, a cosmopolitan citizen, say, London or New York or Sydney uh, or even um, these these other places where the Western idea is like really taken over. I, I don't know if we need more of that perspective. There's tons of it. You know, so if, if we want more stories, I mean, open up doors or windows to other cultures using those ideas. Test yourself. And if you can't tell that story, then maybe you want to be part of um, being an audience member that supports it. You know. Um, I have one st positive story that I'd like to see occur for this revolution, basically. And I, 
I personally would say the Biden story is what the left needs here. Basically, we need somebody who can unite the left. And I don't think that's Keir Starmer like at all because he just wants to be in a center-right party. But I mean, Caroline Lucas was talking, I did an interesting article about this, you know, just she she's written several, I think, about, but I just saw it not too while ago about how, you know, like in a certain place where somebody's not going to win, they won't run a, a you know, they don't want to run a green candidate or a Lib Dem candidate or, or, you know what I mean? Because this is the only way that we're going to win any election here. Um, and we need, you know, uh, yeah, I'd say Biden or Jacinda Ardern. We need somebody who can do this here. And that may not be labor. I'm thinking to myself, maybe it, it, it needs to be a coalition of like, I don't know, green, Lib Dems. I can't stand them, but maybe that's the only other alternative. And Yeah, John. Um, before, um, obviously, Ollie will probably have something to say, or maybe Matt, um, to your point, you're saying that perhaps we need to have like another political party or a coalition. Um, we need a coalition. We okay. need a coalition. And I, cause, cause Keir Starmer isn't, it's not gonna, I'm not voting labor next election because my but, local uh, MP isn't labor anymore. Sorry. What I wanted to say is, is that within the culture that sees, let's be honest, these other parties as like kind of sideline gatherings against the two like um, sides of like almost like a football match. Yeah. That really like um, truly, uh, with all due respect, a, a realistic notion that there will be a coalition. I don't know if people, there's enough people that would understand that with all the histories of all these other parties of them coming together. There's just too much questions that I think um, wouldn't be answered. I, I think that's true, but I think that's what we kind of need to do. Ollie, sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Um... Oh, yeah, yes, you, yes, you. <laughs> I've had sort of a reply to both Yola and also to John's earlier point. Um, first one is a bit more vague and I apologize for diverting from the point of um, narrative so much, but actually kind of not want to think about it. Um, the biggest problem, as you say, people need to unite the left. Well, OK, well, uh, the narrative of the left for the last 20 years has been when do we want it now? What do we want? Huh? So <laughs> they, they have no idea. There, there needs to be a story, to be an idea, an inspiration, a place to go, a story I, you can I, tell I people. Totally, I disagree. Jeremy Corbyn's manifesto was a very good idea, and it's been okay. built by Boris Johnson. Jeremy Corbyn's manifesto was an excellent representation of socialism from the 70s. I like, I like it. It's cool. There's some good ideas in there you know he was a kooky guy um but the thing the thing is that and what i'm saying is that yeah okay a bunch of different policies a bunch of ideas which are good is good i like nationalizing the train service thanks i can't believe the tories are going to nationalize the train service um what like like matt was saying i feel like we're in an episode of the travelers where everything's gone freaking wrong um so like yeah but a group of policies and it's not an ideal, it's not an oath, it's not something to strive for. Yeah. Once upon a time there was a yeah. it, it helps, but it's not uh it's not a thing. It's not a um it's not a position, it's not an I don't want to say ideology, but it's not an ideology. Yeah. Um whereas you had communism and capitalism 
um, there is no ism for the future that as yet we've found that's not just a series of all right sounding economic adjustments. On top of that, we have an issue where the left and the right are basically irrelevant terms now because they're economic terms, terms of, of financial conservatism and financial socialism, socialist policy. Rich people share its stuff, you know, like, but that doesn't matter because people are divided down other lines now, lines of social stuff. The stories have changed. Uh, John? Um, yeah, just a quick aside. Essentially, we have to look to the Blair era. We have to look towards the Clinton era when you've got politicians that are using, um, they're figuring out what the people want and then trying to appease that rather than telling the people that, hey, we recognize this. This is our vision. You know, if you're constantly trying to figure out what they want, it's impossible um, to use um, uh, what Adam Curtis was exercising in his documentary, Can't Get Out of My Head, to use these, um, they were, I can't remember what you call it, but it was basically like, rooms where they try and figure out what those people in the room wanted and therefore use that as a benchmark for what the UK wanted. And they took that, um, the Blairites uh, era, took that from the Clinton era. They, they thought that that seemed to be working for them. And if you're constantly being that kind of mishmash about what it is and not having an actual vision, then you're being dictated to in the worst possible way. It's like, it's almost like using X factor principles, you know, it's almost like using a reality TV show to yes, demand reality. Exactly. And so what do you get? You get you get you get shit. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> get shit. <laughs> it, it, I think it's I think exactly what you're you know, this is true. Bill Clinton used focus groups, that's that how he got elected. Yeah. yeah, he did. And and but the problem is Keir Starmer's trying to use focus groups, but Biden didn't use focus groups. I mean, there are different circumstances, but he's giving people what they want as for as long as he can until the Republicans take over in two years time, but he's giving people what they want, really. And I, Keir Starmer is not giving anybody anything, really. It's sad that the principal um, form of uh, press about Keir Starmer is basically, what the hell does Keir Starmer stand for? That's the thing, like literally, I have a YouTube video right here from TLDR. Focus group. Is, what the hell he does Keir Starmer stand groups. for? Yeah, but, but yeah. I understand the thing is, I having done some research on the man himself, and especially his early career as a human rights lawyer, and taken on I think it was McDonald's and all that stuff like McLawsuit. Um, like he is, seems to be a good person, right? Uh, insofar as politicians can be measured, why is he not? Why does he not stake his virtue on the ground as a flag and say this? This is what I'm for. Don't focus group. You're a seem a decent enough guy. <laughs> I, I have a theory on this, but the difference between Biden and Keir Starmer's experience. Biden is a career politician that has been around a really long time. And he and he had a point where he was with Obama and they didn't go far enough. And thus Trump came into existence because they didn't go far enough. Because the disgruntled poor went or couldn't whatever, go far white, whatever, decided to embrace national. <laughs> Yeah. And he know he saw he had an experience and he knows, you know what, I'm going for it. I'm not doing this bipartisan dance. I'm not doing this bullshit, blah, 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 blah. Here Starmer became an MP four years ago, five years ago. He's like a fucking baby. OK, in terms of and suddenly he's the leader of the Labour Party and he's supposed to know what to do. I, I really don't think 
and his I, I think he's you know he has an agenda that is very narrow and I don't think he has the knowledge or the experience to be to be a decent politician I think this is the problem John you got I something to say He's actually got, I'll agree with some of what you said, he's actually got a significant amount of clout um, when it comes to how he can deal with situations. The problem is that he doesn't have a vision and he's afraid because essentially, if he has a vision, it means offending people on one part of his party, right? He has to do that. That's what being a leader is. You can't do it so that you, everyone likes you. If you want to do that, then hey, maybe do reality TV just to you know, hook us back into what we're saying. I think he's offended the left enough so they don't like him at all. But the right don't think he's doing enough. <laughs> so you see, he's not going far in either but direction because he thinks it's true, but like he's... any lawyer that if you basically fictionalize a certain amount of truth, then um, you can kind of like, you know, control that fiction. But right now, the way people are, are intelligent enough to see through it, if he would have been a great leader for people like say 50 years ago. Do you know what I mean? Because essentially then, I think you had less people, you know, that, that were voting, that were really cognizant about what actually was going on. That's, that's So are you, are you saying that Keir Starmer's sto storytelling is just, it's for 50 years ago and that's why he's not cutting the mustard. This is um, interesting. I'm, I'm being, of stories and narratives. There's quite a bit of hyperbole for me tonight. I'm sorry. But <laughs> essentially, when it comes to Starmer, he thought, right, Corbyn basically was too far into the idea of being a socialist. What I'm going to do is I'm going to unite the party by not necessarily being um, about that, you know, but then Black Lives Matter happened. And then, you know, well, the pandemic happened before that. And he found himself having to do what I was trying to talk about before, but curating your personality. Sure, anyone in the public eye will have to do that. That's part of the fucking job. But if you're in a position of leadership in a political party, you can only do that so much before people think, hey, you know what, this guy, he doesn't believe anything. Like Trump doesn't believe anything. It's just about him becoming bigger and greater so people can look at him. Boris, same thing, doesn't believe in anything. He just wants people to think of him as world king, right? I mean, he wanted to be that when he was five years old. Fair enough, I wanted to be an astronaut, didn't make it, but I'm not fucking over the UK because of that weird shit. <laughs> I mean, face <laughs> nuts. <laughs> I mean, I think that's a fundamental Please, problem. Let's with, get that in there. <laughs> I think there's a fundamental problem with the way we look at, at governing as well, though. To come back to authoritarianism again, like the UK is not a monolith, right? And I have a worry that we have a national reckoning on our hands in terms of what it what the English legacy is, right? Like it's a reason why Black Lives Matter keeps coming up in the statues thing and all this bullshit because it's like you can't criticize England as a politician um, and you can't be too pro England either because they're two narratives that just don't gel together and they are very difficult to resolve. And I think it's because there is a side that does not want to have the conversation that they've been having the luxury of having for a very, very, very long time. And they will keep pushing back on it until they're forced to reckon with it. Um, I mean, personally, I, I wish I could say, I think there's a, a way forward, but um, honestly, I, I think we're kind of straining the bounds of what democracy can do in the modern day. And personally, I would like to see like, 50 more constants. I'd like to see people taking ownership of their own spaces rather than allowing 
it to be controlled by a government that doesn't represent them and by definition almost can't. Um, just to offer some clarity on my last point before coming back to that, um, if you had someone like Starmer working on behalf of a political party in a, uh, a pre-Nixon world, yeah, then he'd be fine because we saw politicians in a very different way, even though there was still a lot of rhetoric back in the day. It's like, we can't trust a politician. He says this one day, then he does this the next day. None, none of them were, you know, literally caught, well, not literally, but he wasn't caught with his pants down, you know. Bill Clinton... Maybe pants is definitely something that came down. Before. <laughs> um, but what you're saying, Matt, um, in fact, you know, I've said enough. Ollie or Ola, please talk about what Matt said. Oh, I, I was very interested in that. Finish your thought. Mm. I, I, I finished my thought on that, but on, in relation to what he said, I, I kind of want to give it to the rest of him. I, uh, well, there's, I wanted to come back around to a point you made a bit earlier at some stage, but... Um, one thing I would say is, yeah, what Matt is saying is, is incredibly important, is the fact that British people, more than almost any other country in the world, are willing to foreclose on all conversation just so they can live in a myth. Like, they're happy to avoid all self-analysis just so they can live in a world of tea cakes and bunting and not worry about improving themselves. And that is cowardice of the highest order and i'm not afraid to say it i think it's shameful but like i don't know if like you say i'm not sure if it's ever going to change i think it might do i think it might change with this generation where we are now you see the rift between the old and the young where the young are going the hell man it's like the uh, it's like the student riots in germany in the 70s where you've got everyone going just talk about the real past please um yeah, yeah. but you never know um but one thing i did want to do john is go back to your point about um, narratives from other places in the world. That was one thing that, that taps on a thing that I find really fascinating um, as a avid reader and absorber of fiction, um, which is that everywhere in the world has its own version of what constitutes heroes, particularly superheroes. I find this fascinating. You know, we always think of superhero, we think of the American ideal, the, um, you know, Superman. Captain America, the overwhelming application of force to solve all problems without nuance. Um, you know, like you beat your problems into the ground in the name of truth, justice in the American way. But that's not the only kind of hero that there is. There's the British hero, Sherlock Holmes, Doctor Who, who solves all his problems with his brain and never rest. And to raise your fist for that kind of hero is considered like a failure. Or the Japanese hero, who is usually some guy who's working his butt off over and over and over and possibly like speed eating ramen between each training session, you know, like <laughs> Dragon Ball Z or Naruto or um, My Hero Academia or China, where for instance, there's been a lot of movies for the kind of Confucian ethic where you get, I think, is it The Wandering Earth? That was a Netflix film, right? Um, where it's a, a disaster movie about the monkey. apocalypse. And monkey. monkey, well, monkey's slightly different, but like you get like a thing about like the apocalypse where it's like, well, if we all work together, we can stop the apocalypse. And it's a movie about loads of disparate people working together. Yeah. So it's interesting. I think like we could do with stealing some of these character devices from other places in the world and, and, and putting them into a more familiar situation, you know, like, um, you know, to, to take the Japanese hero and put him in, say, the French thing. Oh, that was a good one. The French archetype of like the super rich debonair guy who's like, always cool no matter what like if you put the japanese hero in the french 
circumstance or the British hero in the American circumstance, the classic Doctor Who goes to the United States episode where he argues with the general about ethics or something. Um, you know, that's a really interesting thing. I would love to see more of that. And, um, um, I think you've raised some really good points. Um, I, for one, think that those ideas, it's not that we, we don't have access to them. They're, they're in our pop culture, but if you look at the top of the tree, the, the major like players, you know, Disney and whatnot, they are fundamentally interested in the Americanized version of that hero. Even now with, um, was it Shang-Chi that's coming out? I'm hoping that they will be taking aspects from the, um, the culture that they are not infiltrating, but using to sell more lunchboxes to kids. But it could be just another Americanized version in disguise. Aspects of Black Panther were like that, you know. Um, I'd like to see, a, if they're going to have to stick to that mold, I'd like to see a, a superhero show where you're watching things from behind the eyes of someone who actually is propagated as the villain, like a Robin Hood character, yeah? Except that what they're fighting for is something that we can relate to in terms of our everyday lives. We haven't had something like that done within the modern context, I don't think. Yeah. Mm. I mean, I think that's a really beautiful way of uh, summing up the episode. Um, I, I really agree that... Um, diversity of concepts and ideas is is so key in terms of how we progress and tell new and interesting stories and not even necessarily new um, and the only reason they're interesting is because they haven't been told you know like it's it's the fact that at least in the west who we choose to represent or even you know globally just kind of this this kind of melting pot idea of bringing diverse outlooks together i think you always end up with a a better result when you, you sort of bring in that rich diversity of cultural influences um so bring us along to the end it sounds like we've definitely got enough here to do another episode at least um i think it'd be a good time to introduce everyone here at Rampbox. we don't tend to introduce everyone up front because we are more idea driven than personality driven uh but now is the time for everyone to shine so i'm going to start with you this time ollie tell us what you do and who you are um, my name's, as you can see, Oliver Justly. I am a music producer and a musician. I live and work in London. And uh, yeah, <laughs> this is me. I'm an avid absorber of culture and comic books and films and things like that. Thank you very much. Um, Ola, would you like to go next? Sure. <laughs> don't sound too enthusiastic no, that, was, that was me being enthusiastic that was like cool you know like you know, oh, school, man. Oh, not like yeah, an American yeah, yeah. like sure man uh, yeah I'm O's Cool Kitchen and I host a radio show as well as rant on here and the radio show is um, basically because mainstream radio sucks and good music has no boundaries and you can check it on Mixcloud. Thank you so much and uh, finally John why don't you give us a little bit about yourself. Uh, yeah sure thanks Matt. Um, I want to say your introduction at the beginning was so smooth I don't know if you noticed but we we're all smiling like oh wow he's fucking nailing it so just well done. Um, so rewind and watch it now don't listen to me or if you're interested um, I am John Clay I did Rantbox TV. Um, we started it like in 2020, myself and Deanna um, and Alfredo was uh, and still is our editor. 
Um, I have a book and I, I haven't actually spoken about it at all, really, you know, on that book. So I'm going to do it today because the second edition is out. And thankfully, because of Matt, you can actually read it. So again, Matt, thanks for your technical skills. Awesome stuff. Um, the book, it is about a character who has, and I haven't necessarily seen this in stories which involve superheroes, but they have issues regarding internalized racism. They have kind of fallen in love with the idea of what it is that they think they are in terms of their group, i.e. their sidekicks. Um, it starts off with him being in a, a mental institution. And the reason why he's there is because he's basically gone into a certain kind of hiding. The characters that he basically has to, to combat can't find him there. And I won't tell you why that's part of the conceit, but essentially he is given reasons to believe that he has to break out and save the world. Um, where that actually goes, not a particularly great place as you can imagine. So Aww. yeah, I know it, it's, it's <laughs> definitely not, it's not a bedtime story for your five-year-olds. Um, there's, there's stuff that happens in there that I shouldn't have read when I was five, but did. You know, who, who else watched Robocop at a stupidly young age or The Fly? No one watched that shit when they reached I, eight. I, I saw The Fly, the original Fly, not the Jeff Goldblum, the, the, the one where, yeah, me. Yeah, that was good. I like that. I, I love the second one. What I'm saying is I watched those films way too early. So imagine like, because there was some metafictional content, but imagine someone having gone through popular culture in that way, gaining a certain amount of powers, and for that to be something that they have to deal with, as well as combating supposedly bad guys. So yeah, that's my plug over. Thank you. Thanks so much, guys. Check everyone out. I've been Matt Gaffin. I am, just to give you a quick thing, I front a punk band and I've been overcoming a lost voice for like the past year, but hopefully I have an album out soon. Um, yeah, if you liked what you heard today, give us a subscribe either on YouTube or on your podcast um, app of choice. And hopefully we'll see you for the next one. Catch you later. Bye. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye.